What's up, guys? Did you have a uh, good break? That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> yeah, okay. One person did, man. Uh, it's tough. Hey, if you don't know me, I'm Kyle. Uh, really glad to be with you here tonight. Um, I wanted to start, um, to be honest, I've got a confession to make. And uh, I think that this confession might be a little bit shocking to some of you. Um, and it's this. I absolutely hate playing board games. I realize that, oh, some claps, wow. So there are a few of us who aren't Christians in the room, wonderful. Um, yeah, no, no, and to be more specific, I, I hate playing board games with my wife. That's who I really hate playing board games. I get that some of you, this is your thing, some of you are dating and this is your date night and some of you, this is your pastime and what you wanna do. I absolutely can't stand it. And here's the reason why. Because every time without fail, when my wife and I play board games, it doesn't matter if it's just her and I, it doesn't matter if we're playing with friends, it doesn't matter if we're playing with our kids, every single time we get into a fight. Massive fight. Someone, someone says the other person's cheating. Someone pulls the rule book out. Someone gets way too serious. I mean, literally without fail, we get into a fight. We just can't help it because we're so competitive. Now, I know some of you are like, bro, just chill out. Like, let her win every once in a while. Here's the thing. I can't. I have a problem. My name is Kyle, and I have a problem. I want to win board games. But here's the thing. So does she, and she does too. Uh, we have a good marriage, I promise. Um, but we want to win when we play board games, and so what we don't do is we don't play board games together. Now, um, I have no idea if you have the same problem with me as, as it relates to board games. Uh, I, I, if not, great, good for you. Uh, it really is a problem for me. Um, but if you don't, that's fine. Uh, but my guess is, the reason I'm saying, I say most of this in jest, uh, slightly exaggerated, but the reason I'm saying this is because my guess is that there's, there's something in your life, there's, there's something, there's some area of your life, maybe many areas of your life that you can kind of relate to the idea of, of wanting to win. Something in your life, some experience in your life, some, some part of your life where, where either the, the spoken or, or even the unspoken goal is, is to win. And the reason I say that, I, I say it confidently, that I think we're probably all in that together, is because I think that there's something uniquely human in us that absolutely craves winning. It's like we're, we're so drawn to, to winning. We, we want winning. We desire winning. We, we want to be winners. Case in point, Donald Trump. Here's a, uh, a campaign speech from 2016 up in Albany, New York. You're going to be so proud of your country if I get in. You're going to be so proud of your president, and I don't care about that. But you are going to be so proud of your country because we're going to turn it around and we're going to start winning again. We're going to win so much. We're going to win at every level. We're going to win economically. We're going to win with the economy. We're going to win with military. We're going to win with health care and for our veterans. We're going to win with every single facet. We're going to win so much. You may even get tired of winning, and you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore. Mr. President, it's too much. And I'll say, no, it isn't. We have to keep winning. We have to win more. We're going to win more. We're going to win so much. It's, 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 you're laughing because it's comical, right? Like, it's, it's almost a cartoon, right? Like, 
An SNL parody, of course. Gosh, I, I did the math. He literally says win or winning every two seconds uh, for 45 seconds straight. But it's, it's like it, we're laughing, but, but he's doing something, right? He's saying, look, we're going to win. And we're going to keep winning. And we're going to keep winning. And we're going to win more. We're going to win so much. You're gonna get to, we're going to win with the military. We're going to win with health care. We're going to win with tech. We're going to win with politics. We're just going to keep winning until you're sick of winning. And then you're going to realize, no, you're not. You want more winning. And of course, it's hilarious, but there's part of it that's kind of true, right? Like thoughts about Donald Trump aside, he knows something about human beings. And, and we're not talking about human beings out there. We're talking about human beings, right? He knows something about us that, that we crave winning, that there's something about human beings that wants to win. I saw online the other day this, this headline on a website. It, it said this. It says, which religion is winning? And, and I saw it, and I was just like, that's so stupid. Like, what a dumb question. But then I realized, look, it doesn't matter if it's politics. It doesn't matter if it's board games. It doesn't matter if it's sports. It doesn't matter if it's healthcare or military or politics or, or even religion. See, there's something about us that wants to win. There's something in all of us that, that wants to be winners. But the question is, how do we define winning? See, that's the question. How do we define, how do you define winning? And maybe even more importantly, is that how Jesus defines winning? Is that how Jesus defines winning? How does Jesus Define winning. Well, well, tonight that's what we're going to see. And I say see because we're not going to hear from Jesus what winning is. We're going to see him win. And before we do, let me give you, let me give you some context. Kate mentioned earlier, we've been going through uh, Mark this semester. And, um, you know, Mark is one of these biographies of Jesus, one of the earliest biographies of Jesus' life and, and ministry. And, and, and we've gotten to this point, okay, so we've got two weeks left. And, and so we're at this point, we're nearing the end of Jesus' life. And in particular, tonight, uh, we're in a passage that takes place on a Friday. It's the Friday of the last day of Jesus' earthly life, at least for now. And the thing about this particular morning is that hours before, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, hours before this, what happens? Jesus' friend Judas betrays them, be betrays him. And shortly after Judas betrays Jesus, Jesus is arrested by the Jewish authorities, by the Jewish courts. And then after Jesus is arrested, people start to abandon him. People who'd been following Jesus for years, months, days, weeks, year, years even in some cases, start to fall away one by one by one. Even Peter, Emily talked a couple weeks ago, even Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, denies even knowing Jesus. Now, I'm saying this because it's a shocking 180 in the story of Jesus. And, and that's because just a week before this Friday morning, just a week before this Friday morning, tens, hundreds of thousands of people had, had come into Jerusalem for, for maybe you remember us talking about this a few weeks ago, uh, the, the, the Passover festival. So you've got hundreds of thousands of Jews coming into Jerusalem from all over the world for this festival. And so what's going on is that, that the streets in Jerusalem were filled. Excitement is in the air. Anticipation is building. 
while this is all happening, in the, in the midst of the crowds, in the midst of the anticipation, excitement, and people, what happens is that, that Jesus comes over the hill, over the Mount of Olives. We didn't look at this passage, but Jesus comes over the Mount of Olives, and he's riding a donkey. He comes into the city, not with, with a display of power and aggression and force, but he comes in humility on a donkey. Now, you see, the Jews, they rightly understood this moment because for hundreds of years, they'd been anticipating their king. They'd been expecting their king. And now the moment had arrived. Jesus had come to Jerusalem to be crowned as king. And this is what we read in the Gospel of John about this moment. John chapter 12, verse 13. It says, they, the crowds, people, took palm branches and went out to meet Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. You see, this word Hosanna here, it, it means save us. And so as Jesus comes closer to the crowds, the people, they're screaming, save us. To this Jesus riding into town on a donkey. And palm branches, it's not just the closest tree with the closest leaves that, that people just grab. No, palm branches actually symbolize something. They symbolize victory and freedom. And so what happens is, is as Jesus gets closer and closer to the city, into further and further into the crowds, people are screaming, they're yelling, save us, Jesus. They're throwing palm branches, victory, freedom, Jesus is here. You see, Jesus was the king that they had expected. These were the shouts of a hopeful people. It was the praise of, of an expectant people. But the problem was, Jesus ended up not being the king that they thought he was. Jesus wasn't the king that they expected at all. And because Jesus wasn't the king that they expected, he became what? He became the king they rejected. All in just the span of a few days. And so that's where we pick up the story. Friday morning, Mark chapter 15, verse 1. This is very early in the morning. The chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, this is just the Jewish court, they made their plans. And so they bound Jesus, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Now, I want to pause here for a second because what's going on is that the Jewish religious authorities, they didn't actually have the authority to do to Jesus what they wanted to do. See, the Jews for sure wanted to kill him. They'd condemned him already. He'd already been on trial in front of the Jews. They condemned him to death, but they couldn't actually do that. And so what they have to do is they have to transfer him to, to a Roman authority, to the, the kind of Roman government. And so, so think here, Pilate is basically a, a Roman governor of sorts, put into Jerusalem by Rome to kind of keep the peace. And so that's what's happened. Jesus has been brought by the Jews to Pilate, this Roman governor. And we continue. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of, of many things. And so Pilate again asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. This is interesting here that, that, that you know, um, just imagine for a second. Imagine you're on trial for your life, and you're totally innocent. And people are accusing you. 
They're saying terrible things about you, totally untrue things, false things about you in front of a court of law. And, and, and Pilate, this governor, says, what do you have to say? And what does Jesus do? Nothing. He stands there in silence. What would we do? We'd probably defend ourselves, wouldn't we? I'm innocent. I didn't do it. It's not me. And Jesus just stands there, and it tells us that this, this Roman governor was amazed at Jesus' lack of response. It's also interesting, if you read the other Gospels, they tell us that um, they fill in. Remember, Mark doesn't always give us all the details. He kind of just cuts to the point. Um, other Gospels tell us that Pilate actually didn't want much to do with this trial. It wasn't really of much interest to him. He, he, he kind of assumed that this was this more of a kind of Jewish religious thing that, that the Jews needed to handle. And, and he, so he kind of stalls. He goes back and forth. He doesn't really want anything to do with, with Jesus in this court and this trial. But, but he also knows that he's there. He's got to keep the peace. There seems to be a growing antagonism towards Jesus. And so he plays one more card. And, and this is what, what Pilate does. It says, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people had requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Next verse. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. See, it's interesting, that word self-interest, other, other translations say envy. See, what Pilate knows is that the Jews, they're not concerned with, with Jesus overthrowing Rome. What the Jews are upset about is that Jesus claims to be God, and so they say that that's blasphemy. But they, they know that they can't do to Jesus what they want, and so they bring him to the Roman authorities, and they appeal to this idea that Jesus is calling himself a king, that that is a direct challenge to Caesar. But Pilate knows that this is all just a game the Jews are playing to have Jesus killed. He knows that it's out of self-interest that the religious leaders handed, handed Jesus over. It's out of envy. They're envy. Did you know Sometimes I think that we think envy isn't a big deal. Think about this. Envy is one of the sins that led directly to the death of Jesus. They were envious of Jesus. They were envious of his growing popularity. They were envious of his authority. They were envious of his ministry. And so this scene is kind of wild if you think about it. What you have is, you, you have over here, on one hand, you have an innocent Jesus. But then, but then over here, what you have is you have a, a guilty man named Barabbas, this, this violent insurrectionist that we know has committed murder. And now who should be released? Well, it's obvious, right? I mean, it was obvious to Pilate. It's obvious probably to us. Of course, we know who should be released. And yet, next verse, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Crucify. 
See, shouts of Hosanna had turned to shouts of crucify him. Next verse. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He hands Jesus over to be flogged, hands him over to be crucified. See, the tune has changed, hasn't it? I said it was a 180. A few days ago, Jesus was hailed as a hero. Save us, freedom, victory. And now they're yelling, kill him. Crucify him. Which is exactly what they do next. So as the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers, they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Next verse. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff. They spit on him. Falling to their knees, they, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe. When they'd mocked him enough, when they'd gotten tired of mocking him, they finally take off the purple robe and they put his own clothes back on him. You see, Jesus is being beaten. He's bruised. He's mocked. Why? Because to them, he's no king at all. He's just a choke. He wasn't what he said he was. He wasn't who he said he was. And so they lead him out to crucify him. And as they do, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, he's passing by. Jesus is on his way out of town. This guy's on his way in. And the soldiers forced him. No, go back. Sorry. I paused. That's my bad. And the soldiers forced him to carry the cross. Now, I, I want you to imagine this for a second. Imagine that, that you've been following Jesus. You've been following Jesus for, for several years. Imagine what, what people must have been thinking. They've been following Jesus. I don't know if it's weeks or months or years. You've been following Jesus. You've given Jesus your allegiance. You're, you're all in. You really think Jesus is this Messiah that your people have been hoping for, longing for, expecting for hundreds of years. He's the king. Or is he? Because is this what victory looks like? Is this what, 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 what kind of power a king, the Messiah, is supposed to have? See, Jesus isn't triumphing in glory and power at all. No, he's bruised and bloody. He's weak. He's exhausted. The dude can't even carry his own cross. What's going through your mind? Man, this guy isn't it. It's not him. Next verse, it says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. See, it's hard for us to fully comprehend the horror of crucifixion. 
And it's interesting, Mark spares most of the details, and so, so will I, um, for, for the sake of this night. If you were at Camp Veritas, you might remember some of what we talked about uh, regarding the crucifixion. But suffice it to say that that crucifixion, it was so brutal. It was so brutal. And people being crucified suffered so greatly that by law, only the worst of the worst could be cr- crucified. It was so, so shameful, so humiliating, so excruciatingly painful that Roman citizens themselves, by law, weren't allowed to be crucified, regardless of how bad their crimes were. It was so bad, Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And there Jesus was, the worst of the worst, nailed to the cross, suffering, bleeding, dying. Not with dignity, but with shame. And he's mocked the entire time. This is is what some of them say. It says he saved others. You can just see the the jeering. You can see the crowds. You can hear the, the, the mocking in their tone. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Good for Jesus. He could save other people, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, let him come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Of course they didn't believe that. Of course they didn't actually think Jesus could come down from the cross. It was all a big joke to them. Jesus can't come down from the cross because Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't the king that he said he was. He saved other people, but he can't even save himself. And it says those crucified with him, back up. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You see, there were people that the other Gospels tell us that were crucified on on both sides of Jesus. They, too, joined in on the mocking. And so this is what we read. It says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Next verse. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. At last, defeat. Jesus lost. And with his last words, his last dying words, he says the most excruciating words that he could have possibly conceived of. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's talking to his dad. He's had a perfect relationship with his father from eternity past until that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, it's not a rhetorical question. See, we know the rest of the story. Because the Bible tells us that that's not a rhetorical question, that of course the answer, the reason why Jesus was forsaken by God, the reason why Jesus was forsaken by his Father was for you. 
and for me and for us. You see, Jesus was forsaken by God in that moment so that we don't have to be. He took the judgment that we deserve because of the problem of our sin. He took that judgment. He took that punishment upon himself. You see, this looked like a loss. It looked like a loss. But here's the thing. It was the path to victory the entire time. It was the path to winning the entire time. In the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before this moment, Isaiah 53, we read this prophecy about this future servant, this future suffering servant, this future Messiah, this future king, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. You see, for Jesus, winning was always going to look like defeat. What that verse says is that, that for Jesus, winning was always going to look like a loss to a watching world. Remember Mark 10.45 says it like this, for even the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking, the Son of Man, that's himself. Jesus is talking about himself. For even the Son of Man, for even me, for even I, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. It's the great reversal. You see, how does Jesus win? How does Jesus define winning? By serving, by, by sacrificing, by, by giving his life for many. You see, he doesn't win through force and, and, and self-exaltation and, and violence. No, he wins, not like every other king, he wins through humility and self-denial and sacrificial love. See, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to a watching world. It doesn't make sense to, to a world of people that don't get it, that, that can't see Jesus for who he really is. It doesn't make sense. What Jesus did on the cross, it doesn't make sense to people who can't see Jesus for who he really is. It looks stupid. It looks foolish. It looks like defeat. And so that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. But the, foolish, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. See, what this verse does is it throws a question at us that we can't avoid, that not a single person in this room can get away from, is the message of the cross, is it foolishness? How do you answer? When you think about Jesus dying on the cross, when you think about who Jesus is and who said he was, and, and, and when you think about what he did on, is, is looking at Jesus on a cross, nailed and bloody and beaten and dead, is the message of the cross foolishness? Or is it the very power of God by which you're being saved? 
It's a question that we all have to answer. When, when, when Jesus dies, uh, Mark doesn't stop the story there. He, he tells us what happens next. This is what he says. It says, the curtain of the temple. So the moment that Jesus breathes his last breath, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, this Roman soldier who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, I highlighted this, this word curtain here. What's up, with, what's up with the curtain? If you don't know what's going on here, the curtain in the temple um, it, it was an important part of the temple. The temple was the area or the place where Jews went to worship God. And, and the, the curtain um, was, uh, don't, don't think like, you know, a thin little sheet thing. Think like thick, robust. It's pretty substantive. It's almost like a wall. And what the curtain did in the temple is it separated an area of the temple known as the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of the Holies was the area, the Holy of Holies, was the area in which God's glory dwelled. God's very presence dwelled in the temple. And the curtain separated a holy God from the rest of the temple. And so in short, what, what the curtain did is it separated a holy, right, just God from a sinful people, from a broken from a people who couldn't approach God because of their sin. But Mark gives us this detail because he wants us to know that the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple, the divide, the separation, the barrier tears in half, top to bottom. It's an act of God. It couldn't have just happened any other way. It's an act of God, and it symbolized that Jesus' death was the sacrifice to end all sacrifice, that, that the way to approach God was now permanently open. It was permanently open. You see, the barrier, Mark wants us to know, between us and God, it's gone for those of us who believe in Jesus. What he's saying is you can have direct access to God through the cross if you have eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, if you have eyes to see the message of the cross for what it really is, if you have eyes to see and believe. This is, um, this is some graffiti uh, that was found, uh, Roman graffiti uh, found um, back in the 1800s, I think 1857-ish, um, and uh, it, it's uh, difficult to know exactly um, how old this is, but, but all of the, you know, kind of people who study these things um, have kind of agreed that this is probably roughly uh, from the late first century to late third century, so 50 to 250-ish A.D. So relatively speaking, uh, not long after Jesus actually died. And, and, and it's difficult to tell from, from this, and so there's a, a sharper image here, um, the next image. This is, this is what that uh, graffiti looks like um, cleaned up, and, and you can kind of start to make sense of what it is, right? Like what you have over here is what looks like a, a guy with maybe a hand raised, a hand in the air, and, and over here you, you have a man, it kind of looks like maybe on a cross, and for some reason the head of a donkey. And, and this inscription, what, what this says is if you translate it, it, it this guy's name apparently was Alexamenos, 
And it says, Alexamenos worships his God. Now, the crazy thing about this inscription is, is that um, it's, it's widely known as the, the earliest depiction of Jesus' crucifixion that we have. It's certainly not the only one, but, but this is, is likely the, the earliest depiction of the crucifixion that we have in the history of the world. And that's interesting. But it's also clearly a mockery. It's graffiti mocking a guy, whoever this dude was, with his hand raised, worshiping God. This guy, and by extension, by the way, Christians, worshiping a guy who died on a cross. Worshiping a, a king who said that he was going to win victory by being killed. See, it, it was true then and it's true now. Music team, you guys can go ahead and come back up. It was true then and it's true now that the cross has always seemed foolish. That the message of of Jesus dying on the cross. I don't care if it's the first century, the third century, the 21st century. It's always seemed foolish to some. Some people just don't see Jesus for who he really is. Some people don't see it. They miss it. But many of us do see Jesus for who he really is. Many of you really do see Jesus as king, the king that you long for, the king that you want, you've experienced. You, you've not just intellectually believed in Jesus. You've experienced Jesus. You've experienced the change in your life. You've experienced the transformation. You've experienced the freedom that Jesus brought from certain sin. You've, you've experienced the peace and the joy and the satisfaction and the happiness and the fulfillment and the good life that Jesus offers. Some people miss it, but a lot of people, I know you, a lot of people in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but here's the reason why I'm saying this. Because for those of us that see it, what this image and what that verse in 1 Corinthians tells us is that because some people don't, that we, like Alexamenos, should expect ridicule for faithfully following Jesus. You should expect, if you don't already, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be made fun of for faithfully following Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, for some of you, man, what would that look like? It looks like being mocked by a professor when they find out that you're a Christian. For some of you, it means maybe losing some friends you gain others, but, but you lost some friends, some people that, that you thought really were your friends, really did care about you, really did love and like you and wanted to spend time with you, maybe even family members. Maybe you lost some of your social status. For others of you, it might mean you need to rethink what you're doing after graduation, where you're moving to, what your job's going to be. Others of us might need to rethink how we date, how we talk, what we do when we're alone, what we do on the weekends. And we should expect to be ridiculed for trying to faithfully follow Jesus. For all of us, 
It's going to mean choosing things like humility over pride. Serving others instead of serving ourselves. It's going to look like self-denial instead of self-fulfillment. That's a hard one. We're going to have to self-sacrifice and love. Not just when it's easy, but when it's hard. Especially when it's hard. Especially when it's hard. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Guys, when we do this, when we leave these doors and that's how we live, when we're committed to being a people because of who Jesus is, we're, we're, we're being a people committed to living faithfully for Jesus, following Jesus faithfully. What that means is that when we leave these doors, expect to be ridiculed, expect to be seen as foolish, expect to be mocked, expect to be looked at like a loss because that's what it looks like. Except Paul says, but to those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. See, what I want to say tonight, as we're reflecting on Jesus' death on the cross, what I want to say is that following Jesus, it means that sometimes winning is going to come through what looks like losing to everyone else. That sometimes winning is going to look like defeat when we're following Jesus. But that's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. And it's the life that Jesus is calling us into. So he can send us out. Jesus, we come before you and this stuff is heavy. And when we rightly see the reason you had to die, which was sin, our sin, it's even more overwhelming to know that part of our story is what nailed you to the cross. And yet we have hope. Little by little, day by day, we have hope. Because we know that this was always your plan. It's, it's difficult to imagine. I can't fathom how it could possibly be true that that was always your plan, and yet it was, that you were always willing to go to the cross on our behalf to rescue us, not as just people, not as just individuals, but as a collective, as a group of people, so that you could send us out, so that we could go out into the world with humility, self-sacrifice and service and in love, drawing not on our own strength, Jesus. Oh, no, it's not us. It's you. It's the power of the cross that for those of us who believe is saving us. Jesus, thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your name.